And we are finishing up a great series. That series is on Romans 8. It hadn't been a great series because of the preachers. It's been a great series because it's just wonderful to dive in for a little bit of time into God's Word. And to take one particular chapter to linger just a little bit longer than we normally would and just point out a few things. Now, this is obvious. We will never run out of material in the Bible to preach. The preacher every week, every week a preacher sits down and thinks, you know, there was just so much more to say. And when I prepare, not that I prepare better or worse than anyone else, it's just my particular personality, I typically walk up here with almost two full sermons worth of information. And then it's trying to whittle down what is it that we need to talk about on this particular morning. And um, what is here in Romans 8, I hope that we have whet your appetite so that you can continue diving in a little bit further. I don't know how far you made it in terms of memorizing this particular chapter, but I hope you got to memorize at least a handful of verses. Um, But if you will let this linger over your mind and heart, I promise you this, you will not regret it. As the years go on, you will find that Romans 8 will come back over and over and over again in your spiritual pilgrimage. Now, why is that? I am convinced it is because the lyrics that we just sang. I'm not a person that enjoys singing the same lyrics over and over and over again. I got nothing against it. It's just not my particular preference um, in music. But in a song like we just sang, your love never fails. It It never gives up. Those are things that we need to repeat over and over and over again. Because what is human nature is to run away when things get hard and difficult. And we assume that that's the case in relationships. Isn't it easiest to run away from a relationship when it gets difficult in the process? When someone does something that is um, incredibly um, insensitive, harsh, um, dumb, etc., Uh, And then there's no real apology that's made. And then there's this tension that's created. Isn't the easiest thing to do in a relationship just to walk away? Guy that I played football with, and I shared with you another story that uh, he gave to me um, that had a profound impact on my understanding of surrender. I won't say it now, but he was a Marine. And anyone who serves in our military in any capacity, whether it's in a medical capacity, whether it's administrative capacity, whether Anyone who serves, every man and woman who serves, is worthy of honor and dignity. But in my opinion, it's just David's opinion, there's something about Marines that's just a little different. They're just weirdos. <laughs> and the reason is, for most of us, when we see danger and peril, our natural human instinct is to step back and move away from that danger. Marines, it seems, sees danger and peril, and they step towards it rather than away from it. And evidently, that is a mantra amongst the Marines. They run towards danger while everyone else runs away from it. So while it may be natural for us to run away from relational danger, guess who runs towards it? Jesus. And that's not going to come natural to our thinking. We're not going to assume that that's the case of God. We're going to assume that God functions far more like us. And so when we blow it, when we mess up in this relationship, we assume that he has the natural step back away from us out of disgust 
and out of his lack of patience. That's what we assume. That's what comes natural to us. But Jesus is the ultimate Marine. Marines are like him in many ways. He sees the relational harm. He sees the difficulty. He sees our sin, and he steps in. And this is what Romans 8 is trying to get across to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to us that we might see these amazing truths. But remember, the chapter begins with there is no condemnation. And today, we're going to see how it ends with there is no separation. Can you honestly tell me today that you never really struggle wondering whether or not God runs from you? That you're so secure in it that there's never a moment of doubt. That the moment that you sin, your first thought is, whew, thank goodness, Jesus, that you are drawing even closer to me right now. Thank you for separating my sin. This is why we need Romans 8. This is why I would recommend memorize as much as you can. Meditate on it. Dwell um, on it. Now, I won't recap the whole series. It's it's in the notes for you for those of you who who check out those things, sermon notes uh, online. Um, but again, just, uh, just a few reminders to us. We started this series out saying there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And along the way, we said just a few things. The outlook of the flesh is death. The outlook of the spirit is life and peace. Fear drives us. Love compels us. We wonder God works. Last week, Mike shared with us this. When we become focused on the worst works within us, God refocuses us on his very best work within us. We said there's four ways we could divide up this chapter. We're in that last section right now, which is the person and purpose of God, which started in verse 26, makes its way all the way through verse 39. And Leon Morris, I'm going to recite it once again since Mike tried to debunk it last week, wherever he is. I don't see him in here right now. I just wasted that joke. He's not even here. Leon Morris said this, an interesting feature of the chapter, which is not always noticed, that there's not a single imperative. Paul is talking about life in the Spirit, life in which the Spirit guides us so constantly that there is no need for a string of commandments. And then Mike rightly pointed out, there is one implied commandment in this, and that is rest. What a great weekend to close this chapter out. A weekend in which we as a nation take some time away from our normal labor and work and we focus on resting. Now, when we focus on resting, what do most of us want to do when we have a time to focus on rest? Don't most of us want to hang out with family? Don't most of us say, I'd like to just have a little bit of time, possibly sleep longer than than, than normally, but I I want to hang out with family. That's why it's good to hang out on the holidays with grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles and all that. This is what Paul is ultimately trying to get across to us. Rest, just hang out with your father. He's inviting you. He's doing this. And even though you're sinning, he's doing this. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Normally, I try to have some type of yin and yang, so some sort of statement of opposite, something that is, here's our natural sin condition, and here's this. I think the main thesis for this morning, it just cannot be summed up any better than what the Scriptures have already said. Nothing can separate us 
from the love of Christ. If you are physically able, would you stand in honor of God's word as we read this last section of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. You may be seated. There is a reason Romans 8, 31 through 39 is in the Bible because deep down inside, we really think that at some point God is gonna finally have enough of our shenanigans and he is going to walk away. That is natural and normal for us all because that is natural and normal for all of humanity. It is not natural and normal for there to be ongoing, consistent, persistent waiting over and over and over again. There's only a handful of relationships in which we expect that to happen. And one of them is from our mamas. We know deep down inside our mamas love us with a love that really nobody else can and will. That mom has a special place in her heart for her kids that just will never seemingly give up on them. And I know that some of us, not me, but some of us have had some experiences with mom that would not indicate that. But for most of us, we've had experiences with our mother that just seems to give this ongoing unconditional love. But outside of that, can you name any other relationship in which you have that level of confidence? So there's a reason why this is in the Bible. I want to read to you a quote from a man named John Stott, who was a brilliant theologian, and he had this to say on this particular section, these uh, seven, eight, nine verses here in uh, Romans 8. Paul introduces the last nine verses of this chapter with a concluding formula, which he has already used three times, twice in chapter 6 and once in, verse, in uh, chapter 7. What then shall we say in response to this? That is, in light of his five convictions, and five affirmations, what is there left to say? Or what can we add? The apostle's answer to his own question is to ask five more questions, to which there is no answer. He hurls them into space, as it were, in the spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, 
and glorified. Paul is going to ask us five questions in here. There's technically six, but the first one is, is kind of a freebie because it's, well, what then should we say? In some ways, he's referring to the entirety of the letter to the Romans. In some ways, he's referring to chapters 6, 7, and 8. In some ways, he's referring to the entirety of chapter 8. But I think most specifically what he's referring to right now is this last little section that we just talked about last week. In fact, that God has done all these things. He called us. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. He adopted us. He justified us. And he's going to glorify us one day. In light of that, what else can we say? Can I say it this way? What else does God need to do to convince us? Now, this is not a condemning statement saying, you better believe this or you're stupid. That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to point out it's human nature. It's understandable that we would not naturally embrace this truth. But what Paul is saying is, in light of all that God has done, is doing, will do, all that is said, what else can we actually say to this to convince you? There's nothing else to say. If that does not convince us of God's love for us, nothing will. There's no illustration. There's no other gift. There's nothing else he can do that is going to convince us. So what it takes is the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to be able to see with reality what's going on, open the depths of our heart to the reality of how he loves us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to help us understand God just loves us. But he closes out this chapter with some truths that are great to think on, to memorize, to meditate, to remember right when we sin. So what shall we say to this? He then asks the first question, who can be against us? The first two questions are going to aim at our logic. Who can be against us? If God is for us, is statement A, then who can be against us? And here's the logic. If the creator of the universe is not just not against us, but is actually for us, then who that actually matters can come against us. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying there will not be opposition to us in life. There's going to be plenty of opposition. That opposition might come from your neighborhood. It might come from your office. It might even come from your own home. That opposition is going to come. But in light of the fact of who is for us, what does it really matter? It's kind of like having the ultimate weapon on whatever sports team you have. It's kind of like having Messi on your team playing against seventh graders. If Messi is on your team, does it really matter who else is on the team, seventh graders? If God is for you, and please hear me, it's not that he is just not against you, It's not that he's just sort of impartial. It's not that he's uh, sort of indifferent. He is actually for you. And if God is for you, then does it really matter who is against you? Now, who will come against you? There will be enemies. Satan will come against you. You will come against you. You will condemn yourself. 
God will not come against you. God will only be for you. If God is for us, then who can be against us? The second question is, how will he not give us all things? Notice again here the logic that he uses. The first statement he says is, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he also not graciously give us all things? There are many of us who struggle on a regular basis and we say, you know what, I'm pretty sure that I believe that Christ died for me, but I'm just not sure that he really likes me and loves me. And I'm going to base that decision based on what it is he does and does not provide for me in the short term and the time being. And so here's Paul's logic. If God did not withhold his son from going to a cross on your behalf, do you really think that he's going to withhold some really good things that you need in life? Do you think he's going to fall asleep on the job? Do you think he's not going to hear what it is that you actually need? Now, he's not going to give us everything that we want. He's not going to give us everything that we ask for, every whim, wish, and desire. He's not going to do that, but he is going to give us everything that we need. Now, I love this term that he uses here, gave. God who gave up his son. The same word is used of Jesus in Galatians 2.20 who gave himself up for us. So God gave up the son. The son gave up himself willingly, voluntarily. The scripture goes so far to say that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It also says that it delighted the father to to kill, in essence, his son. If he did not withhold that, do you really think he's going to withhold something you need in life? Peter clarifies for us later on. In 2 Peter verse 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, he has already given us everything that we need for life and godliness, and he will provide everything that we need as long as his plan is to keep us on the earth. And the moment that his plan is no longer for us to be on this earth, but to join him in eternity, our needs won't be met. So the first two are logic, and they don't really get to the heart of the emotion. They're they're logic. If if God is for us, then who can be against us? And and if he gave us the ultimate gift, do you not think he'll give us the smaller gifts along the way? The third uh, uh, question he gives gets into the second reason we should be assured of this, and this is our legal standing. Who shall bring a charge against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, this term is a term that we all are uh, familiar with, and this is the place where I think we go most often. We take ourselves into the spiritual court of law, and we know that what it is that we have done, and so we try to somehow bring a defense before God. And so sometimes we try to bring some excuse. Well, Lord, you know, I was really tired right then. I was hungry. I was hangry um, in the process. So you really shouldn't count this one against me. Or we go into the, to the prosecuting mode in which we say I'm the worst that has ever existed and you should rightfully push me away. We go into the, to the legal room regularly and often until we get so sick and tired of going there that we tend to back away and back away and back away. And then we just don't approach God. And when we get so used to not being in his presence that we forget what it's like to actually have intimacy with him. This is a 
legal standing that he's referring to. Who is actually going to bring a charge? Now, who used to bring the charge um, all the time in the, in the scriptures? The accuser, right? You remember the whole circumstance with Job in which the evil one makes his way into the presence of God? And he's saying, well, yeah, of course that dude follows you. Look at everything you've done for him. Like if you just remove your hand of, of, of grace, if you remove your hand of blessing, if, if, if you cause him to, uh, to really go through some hard things, he wouldn't worship you like that. God says, go right ahead. God knew his grace would be sufficient. The evil one is the one who makes his way into the presence of God and accuses over and over again. Do you know the scriptures let us know that he can no longer do that? He can no longer stand in the presence of God and accuse the believers. Why? Because of Jesus, who has dealt with once and for all this sin problem. So Jesus has given the ultimate verdict to the guilty charge that is against us. Who can actually bring a charge against us? Now, I don't have a good illustration for you other than to say this there would be some type of legal case that would be so obvious to everyone in the legal world. Every judge, every lawyer, every administrative assistant, every person in the legal system would say, this is a no-brainer. This is Jesus standing in the court all of the sin has been put upon him. All of it now has been removed from the believer, away from them as far as the east is from the west. So who is going to bring a charge against a person that is completely innocent? So you've got this individual. Um, uh, you have him on camera. There are 7,000 witnesses to this individual speaking at an engagement. The crime took place at the exact moment he was on the stage. All of you, this is a no-brainer. Who's going to bring a charge against this? It's not going to be the evil one. He can no longer do that according to the scriptures. It's not going to be God himself who's going to bring the charge against it. The only person who's going to bring a charge is you. You're the only one that's going to bring a charge to the Father against you. second part of the legal standing comes in the next question, who is to condemn? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Well, then who is to condemn? Condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who can bring a charge? Nobody but you. Who can condemn? Nobody but you. Do you remember the story of the woman uh, caught in the act of adultery? There are many who believe that this story does not belong in the scriptures, meaning it's not a part of the original writings. I, I can tell you this. I'm confident that John himself did not write that story. It's a different writing in there. I'm, I'm one of those who believes it does belong in the scripture. Even if it doesn't, the principle of the story is really true. But the story goes where this woman is caught in the act of of adultery, and there are those that I am convinced set a trap for her. Um, they were the, the, the self-righteous of the day. They had uh, manipulated circumstances to get her in this particular circumstance. They 
Um, uh, they then catch her in the act and they take her and, and she is there in front of Jesus and it says that she is thrown down at the feet of Jesus. And you remember where Jesus is, is, is said, uh, is asked, hey, what should we do uh, here? And the, the story is just Jesus writing in the sand, almost uninterested in their question. Then it says he stands up and he looks out and he says, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And as the story goes, you've got the older guys. I think the ones that have been around longer understand they're the ones that are trapped now. They couldn't trap Jesus in this. And they realize no matter what their answer is, they're going to lose on this particular. So the older ones are the ones who drop their stones and they start walking away until finally the youngest, the most stubborn, uh, the, those who thought they could, uh, could, could get one over on Jesus, they finally leave. And it's just Jesus and it is this woman who is there um, in all of her sin, bare, exposed to the Son of God. And he then asked her this question. Woman, where are they? Where are your condemners? See, this is what is true for us. It is just us. It's Jesus and it's us. And every time that we sin, we blow it. And we do it oftentimes unintentionally, not realizing what we're getting. But most often we do it intentionally, knowing what we're doing is wrong. And in that moment, it is just Jesus and it is just us. And he would ask us the same question. Where are those who condemn you? And I am convinced most of us would say, I'm right here. See, I don't need you to point out my sin. Do you need me to point out yours? Or do you see yours with crystal clarity? I think this is true of most people in the world, period. Whether they would be religious or irreligious, I think most people in the world live with a guilty conscience and we're trying to do something to get rid of the guilt and shame that it is that we feel and wear almost every day of our lives. And so sometimes we try to make an effort to say it's no longer sin in order to make me feel better about it. But deep down inside, I know it's sin. Sometimes I try to rationalize it, justify it, saying everyone else is also involved in the same thing, but it still doesn't remove this weight of guilt that I feel. Jesus would stand before you, who'd stand before me and say, where are those who are going to bring condemnation towards you? They're gone. No one can condemn you but you. Notice the progression he makes. He says that Christ died. Christ received the punishment and he removed the sin. It says that he was raised, meaning he overcame the power and the penalty of sin. It says that he is at the right hand of God, which means his job is finished and he is in the presence of of the almighty God. He is in the ear of the judge. And then it says that he is interceding, which means he is pleading our case before the father on an ongoing basis. He never stops interceding on our behalf. Who is to condemn? Just you. The final question he asks is not one of a approaching logic and not approaching our legal standing. This is the one that hopefully just penetrates to our hearts. It's love. Who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ. What is it that would actually bring separation? We've said it, I feel like, a hundred times from this stage, but there is no pain like the pain of separation. And so who will separate us from the love of Christ? Psalm 44, 22 is what he quotes, and I think the reason he quotes it in here is to let us know that this has always been the case for God's people. It will always be the case for God's people that we will look around and we will find ourselves in circumstances that will sure feel as though God has separated himself from us because life is so difficult, it is so hard, and it will oftentimes feel as though we're finally getting the punishment that we really deserve. I think he's quoting it to say, this has always been this way for God's people. We're always going to face persecution and trial and trouble. But look at the list that he makes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of those things are on a list that none of us would say, I can't wait to have that in my life. That sounds like a really good thing. Tribulation, who wants that? Distress, do you really want more stress in your life? Persecution, famine, nakedness, all of these things are are when we feel really, really vulnerable. You may not have these kinds of dreams. It may be because I'm just a weirdo, but I have these weird dreams every now and then in which I've got to go teach or speak or preach or something. And I find myself walking through a crowd to get to the stage and I don't have a single stitch of clothing on. And it is the worst feeling in the world. And I don't know why I keep having that. that, It's not like I have it every night. I mean, probably once a year or something like that. But it is the worst. It's so exposed. It is in our greatest hour of exposure that God, uh, Jesus, the ultimate Marine, steps in. He moves towards us. In our time of greatest shame, embarrassment, a time in which we're looking around saying, I sure hope nobody else in the whole world is seeing this, is when Jesus is moving forward. The rest of the world may be moving back, but he's moving towards you. You know what else he could put in here? Divorce, abandonment. He could put in a hundred other things that may have happened that, that happened as a result um, of someone doing something against you, something that you didn't ask for, didn't look for, didn't intend on. Shall these things separate us? No. No, in, in all these things, it says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us now. Just one quick word, Um, this one passage as well as Romans 5 and 6, the two that gripped me the most in studying this, this one verse right here gripped me so greatly. We're going to have a series later on on what does it mean to be a conqueror, more than a conqueror in in, in Christ. Because we shouldn't just be approaching our Christian life as I'm just, you know, some poor little sinner and, you know, there's not a whole lot I can offer. No, we're more than conquerors, according to Jesus. He designed us to live in victory, knowing that we will fail, but he designed us to to walk um, uh, in in victory. More to come on that much later. But we're more than conquerors 
through him who loved us, not in and of ourselves. But he says, I am sure, I am confident, I can bank on it, I come back to it. When I doubt it, I remind myself of this truth. I am sure that neither death nor life. Death separates everyone from everyone. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. It actually ushers us into the presence in which we embrace it to a greater degree. Death won't separate us. Life won't separate us. What we do in this life won't separate us. Nor things present, nor things to come. The sin that you have committed now, the sin that you have committed in the past, the sin that you will commit in the future will not separate you from the love of Christ. Nor height, nor depth. There is no space that we could reach. Many of us experiencing this right now, loved ones living in different places. I'm grateful for things like the phone, like Zoom, like FaceTime, other things that help bring that person a little bit closer, a little more often. But, 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 but space brings separation and, and challenge with it. That height nor depth, that won't separate you from the love of Christ. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I... Th- There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Now, here's where I want to close. I have intentionally chosen to preach this message in a way today that is not designed to get to the warm and fuzzies of your heart. And here's why. Because if we rely and bank on the warm and fuzzies, it is just a matter of time before we fall into doubt again. This is an intellectual series. It is an intellectual passage. It is designed to tell us that which is true. And we must base our lives based on what is true. Your emotions are good things. God gave them to you for a reason. They're they're the light on the dashboard that indicate to us what's going on in life. But we must rely on this And on this right here, as it pertains to our relationship with Christ. Because if we rely on what it is that we do, and then based on how it is that we feel in light of what it is that we've done, we will forever be asking this question, do you love me? And we will never come to peace in our hearts over the fact that God has said that he loves us. He means that he loves us. He will never lie to us. We must bank on the truth of what he says and function in life in light of the truth rather than functioning in life based on what it is that we feel in any given moment. So if you want something for your heart, go back in your mind and go back to the person in your life who has shown you the greatest most unconditional love you've ever experienced. Dwell on that for a little while. And understand that that person was graciously given that ability by God himself. And their love for you, that individual, that person's love for you, whether it's your mom or your grandma or somebody else, that person's love for you pales in comparison to what it is that God has for you. Because that person still, to some degree, is going to back up. But Jesus, 
when you sin is going to move towards you, when you doubt is going to move towards you, when you think that what he is saying is not true is going to move towards you because this is who he is. So Wildwood, you can either believe it or not. You can either ask God to overwhelm your mind and your heart and to give you a peace that passes the understanding of this and impacts this so that you will rest. Rest not in the fact that you'll finally get it right the next time, but rest in the fact that Christ really has done it all. My friends, Jesus came to earth to pursue sinners. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. He was raised again from the dead, overcoming the power and the penalty of sin. He offers himself freely to all who would come to him by faith. And faith does not mean a simple intellectual assent to truth. It means a surrendering of the controls of our lives, that we hand him over everything, that if it's not true, we are in a world of hurt. But for all who come to him, the scripture tells us, he gives them the right to become the children of God. Oh, Wildwood, come to Jesus. You will never regret it.